from 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 3, it's page 991 in that blue Bible. Paul is writing to Timothy, reminding Timothy what uh, he left him there for, why he's there. And you can't miss it, this really summarizes the letter of 1 Timothy, and so it begins in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons swerving from these, what? Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So notice that Timothy's charged stay at Ephesus is both positive and negative. It's the, this love that issues from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith is a thing that he promotes, but he must stand against certain people who teach different doctrines and devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. But what's the problem with myths and endless genealogies? Verse 4 uh, verse, uh, yeah, the end of verse 4, which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God, which is by faith. Now, I bring that up because apparently the genealogies Paul f- is thinking of is something that is magical and mythical, some kind of genealogical like Kabbalah, where you concoct some way to generate power by knowing these genealogies. Paul had no idea, no concept of endless genealogies being a bad thing in reference to the Scriptures. When Paul talks about endless genealogies, he does not have First and Second Chronicles at mind. I know some of you wished he did, but he doesn't. That's nowhere on his radar. In fact, he thinks that those are, and he teaches that that is the Word of God. And so now we turn to First and Second, uh, First Chronicles, chapters one through three. Yes, we will knock out three chapters. You just watch, and that is on page three thirty-four. As we begin a new series through First and Second Chronicles, and this is where we begin. So, First Chronicles. Just I'm going to summarize most of this, and then we will land on the last several verses of chapter three. So, notice that First Chronicles one verses one through twenty-three begins with Adam, and it runs through this list of people who are connected all the way up to just before, or pretty close to Abraham. You see that in verse twenty-four, and then twenty-five. So. From Adam to Abraham, and then starting at verse 28, it moves from Abraham on. It talks about Abraham's son, sons Isaac and Ishmael. It mentions Ishmael's people very briefly and leaves them on the side to never come back to them again. But then it moves on to talk about Isaac's descendants, who would be Esau and Jacob. So the rest of chapter 2 looks at Esau's descendants and then puts them aside, never really to deal with them again. And starting in chapter th- 2, chapter 2, he then begins, the writer then begins to work through Jacob's descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel, but he's going somewhere. He's running through that whole list to come to another climactic moment in God's world rescue operation, David. 
And that's how second, uh, chapter 2 ends, is looking, starting to run into David. And so chapter 3, all of chapter 3, is dealing with David, whom God had promised would be through him would come the Messiah. He promised to Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed. And then it all begins to coalesce in David, and he tells David, through you will come the Messiah. So that was the summarizing of chapters 1 through 3, but let us read the last part of chapter 3. These are also the descendants of David, hundreds of years after David, starting at verse 19. And the sons of Padiah, Zerubbabel and Shemaiah. Zerubbabel lived between 522 and 483 B.C. So notice what's going to happen. So somewhere in that spectrum... Then come all these other descendants for ten generations. And I'll explain why that's important. Zerubbabel and Shemaiah. Number one, the sons of Zerubbabel, Meshalem, Hananiah, and Shelemoth was their sister, and Hashubah, Ohel, Berechiah, Hasadiah, and Jashub, Hased, five. Generation two, the sons of Hanani, Pelatiah, and Jeshiah. Number three, his son, Rephiah. Number four, his son, Arnon. Number five, his son, Obadiah. Number six, his son, Shechaniah. Seven, the son of Shechaniah, Shemaiah. Eight, the sons of Shemaiah, Hatush, Egal, Bariah, Neriah, and Shaphat. Six, here's number nine. The sons of Neriah were Elioni, Hezekiah, and Azrikam. Three, here's number ten. Ten generations after Zerubbabel. The sons of Elioni. Hodaviah, Eliashib, Peliah, Akub, Jehoanan, Deliah, and Anani, seven. Ten generations after Zerubbabel. Dear friends, what I read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and what I've summarized and read for you in 1 Chronicles, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, give us good Lord. Give us the hardiness that we will need today. And throughout this series, to hear you, to fathom what we are to believe about you, what you require of us, and to see better what it means to love you whole hog. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's sermon notes on the back of the worship guide. Please do keep your Bibles open to that passage briefly. So where, oh where are my marbles? That's exactly what some of you may be wondering as you saw the announcement not long ago about we're going to do this series in First and Second Chronicles and you may be questioning my sanity, which is, as I've said often, is always a good thing to question. But we're launching into a 33-part series in First and Second Chronicles. Back in 2014, Sunday evening, I did a 22-part series on First and Second Chronicles. This one is expanded and it's going to take us right up until Christmas. So you can just... We're just going to be here forever. <laughs> well, you may wonder, why would I do such an imprudent thing to do First and Second Chronicles? Well, today I hope to show you at least a little bit and hopefully stir up a bit of excitement. But let me begin first off by addressing genealogies quickly before we move into the main part of the sermon. I think uh, 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 an Old Testament professor at Biola University, Carmen Joy Imes, in a new book she just published called Being God's Image, which University Press is having me read to review. She puts it well in just this short sentence or two. Genealogies are not 
our go-to for inspiration. But if we are patient with them, they yield great insights. It's a good way to put it. We often do not want to read First and Second Chronicles because of all those genealogies. I don't know about you, but I don't do well with uh, Ancestry.com, right? My dad didn't like that stuff either. He was always afraid there were horse thieves back there. And lo and behold, there are some horse thieves back there. But we don't do well with genealogies. And so most of you have been prohibited because of your own, uh, just because of your own disposition towards genealogies at not reading First and Second Chronicles. Those first nine chapters can boggle your brains. But there's a reason for those, those genealogies. I could give you several of them now, but here's one that always sticks out whenever I'm reading those genealogies. Nobody knows who all those people are. There's only a few of them that you know. And here's the good news. When I read that genealogy, God made sure to remind us that He knows the people that nobody remembers. Now, I don't know about you, but in a few years, I'm going to die. You'll die too, don't worry. And in six weeks, six months, six years, whatever, people are just not going to remember you. And then your children, grandchildren might hear stories, some of them true, some of them not true, but then by the time you get to your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, nobody has a clue who you are. You're just a number in an ancestry registry somewhere. But First and Second Chronicles tells us, here is God's world's rescue operation, here's His story, and it's filled with people like you and me that nobody will remember, but He does! So every time you read the genealogies of nothing else... Let that thought come back to your head and say, thank you, God, that you remember the little people like me. There's the genealogies, all in a nutshell. So let's do this. Let's, play, let's find the place of First and Second Chronicles. The place of First and Second Chronicles. This is our first point. In our English Bibles, First and Second Chronicles are smack dab in the middle which is fine, comes hard on the heels of First and Second Kings, which always boggles our brains. Why do I need to hear all this stuff again? I just got done with First and Second Kings, right? But in the Hebrew Scriptures, First and Second Chronicles are the last set of scrolls in, first, in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're the last two books in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so notice as we were looking at Zerubbabel and his ten generations after him, if you just do the math, and I'm just going to say, give each generation 20 years. If you start with 522 B.C. and you run through ten generations, which is when this was finalized, that puts us into around 322 B.C. Puts us at the end of the fourth century. What does that all mean? It means that the final composition and arrangement of First and Second Chronicles was finalized over a hundred years after Malachi. First and Second Chronicles was finalized in this form that you see it over a hundred years after Malachi, about the time that Alexander the Great was rising up out of Greece to go conquer the world. At about a moment when all the world would change, because of Alexander the Great, comes the final version of First and Second Chronicles. And so First and Second Chronicles are written at a specific time. They're written at a specific time when Jews were still under the Persian thumb, but the world was about to radically change. And these Jews were trickling back, still trickling back into Judah. 
And the message of First and Second Chronicles has everything to do with reclaiming, reviving, reforming, and returning. Primarily, First and Second Chronicles is an interpretive, people-defining, God-focused retelling of historical events with this agenda in mind. To reclaim, to revive, to reform, to return the people of God to the God of the people. If you're taking notes, let me say it again. To reclaim, revive, return, uh, reform, return the people of God to the God of the people. That's the overarching momentum of First and Second Chronicles. That's the place of First and Second Chronicles. And so let's pull it together. One way that we can know that there is an actual goal to this book, to these two books, First and Second Chronicles, that there's a goal to the intentional editorial economizing going on here is to do this. Let me give you an example. This is 82 years of one man's life. His name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. 82 years, two volumes, it's a thousand pages, okay? That's one man's life, 82 years. Just take, this is... The value of having a physical Bible, by the way. Just take First and Second Chronicles between your two fingers. I challenge you to do it. And hold it up and you will notice. That's 82 years of man's life. Here's 900 years of a nation's life. 75 pages. Do you see it? Does everybody see it? 75 pages to cover. And it's like that in almost every translation. It's around 75 pages. What does that tell you? That tells you then that there's a lot of important details. There's a lot of normal and abnormal things that were completely and totally avoided in this retelling because the editorial economizers are primarily putting in those historical facts that fit into the goal stream. Let me try a different illustration. America's short history, if you just start with 1776, which we would always claim is the birth of our nation, you just start with 1776 and you run to the present, that's 247 years. I did the math for you, don't worry, okay? How many books have been written about each era of America's history? And it's a short history. 276 is not a long life of a nation. It's very short. How many books have been written about each era of America's life, each president, every adventurer, all of the wars, if you, and so forth, if you were to pull all of that together, it would fill up the Edmund Public Library and then some. And think about this moment. President Joe Biden calls you on the phone and he commissions you, you specifically, to go weed through all of those events and books and pull them all together into a short 100-page book. Ah! Right? There's a lot of editorial economizing going on. It's just like the gospel accounts. You read the four gospel accounts, and you realize that all of those events and episodes and scenes and actions are true historical events, but it's not everything that happened, and it's those events being packaged through the Holy Spirit-guided editorial economizing, done in such a way as to draw us, the hearers and readers, 
toward a goal or set of aspirations. You know that's the case, for example, when you read the Gospel of John. Because you get to John 20 and verse 31, he tells you why he put John together the way he did. If I told you everything that Jesus did, it'd fill up all the libraries. But I told you all this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? That's the whole purpose of John. And he economized... Um, the historical events, just leaving out tons of stuff and putting these in to draw us in that direction. And so you may, hopefully this is helpful to you, but First and Second Chronicles then flows toward an overarching aim. It flows toward this ambition, and the ambition is to help to reclaim, revive, reform, and return the hearts and the minds of God's church to the God of the church. That's what it's about. Now, I sent you out, uh, you'll get it in the email Monday probably when Natalie sends it out to you in email, but I sent you uh, the Bible Project has a cute video, very good video, as a summary of First and Second Chronicles. I highly recommend you watch it. That actually fits into what I already had laid out here. So keep that in mind. Its ambition is to reclaim, revive, reform, return the hearts and minds of God's church to the God of the church. So as we keep this in mind, it will aid us in pulling it together, but let's dig a little bit deeper into the purpose. If you're in the adult class where we're doing the Psalms, all of this is going to sound very, very familiar. Look, as you read First and Second Chronicles, and please, please read First and Second Chronicles, even the genealogies. Read them. But as you read First and Second Chronicles, look for repeated themes, word, phrases, and refrains throughout those two works. It will amaze you. So let me give you a small sampling. The phrases, called on, called upon, cried to, are used seven times in both those books. Seek sought the Lord, both in the positive and in the negative. He sought the Lord, he didn't seek the Lord. So seek and sought the Lord is used 12 times in both books. Forsake, abandoned. If you forsake the Lord or because you have abandoned or if you do not forsake, both negative and positive, forsake, abandon is used eight times. Did what was right, did not do what was right is used 11 times. The biggie, the shocker, was this. Heart. Heart or whole heart used 27 times in First and Second Chronicles. Heart and whole heart. First and Second Chronicles is primarily about reclaiming the heart. It's about reviving the heart. It's about reforming the heart. It's about returning the heart to seek the Lord, to authentically call upon Him to not forsake or abandon Him, but to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. That's the overarching purpose. And so from early in 1 Chronicles all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles, this message pulses through like a relentless beat of a long rap song. And if you listen carefully to First and Second Chronicles, there are two verses that are being worked out. 
two verses. If you're writing references, here's the first one. On the one hand are the words of good King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 2020. Everybody put your glasses on. 2020. 2 Chronicles 2020. It's great. Here's what Jehoshaphat said, and you'll hear this being worked out through First and Second Chronicles. Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in Yahweh your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Believe in Yahweh your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. On the other hand is another theme, another verse that actually flows through this whole set of books, these two books. It's a verse that horribly, we horribly pull out of context. Usually every year we have an international day of prayer or when we have a presidential election. It gets pulled out or it used to get pulled out a lot and misused. But it's about God's people, God's church. You know what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked way. Then I will hear from heaven. And will forgive their sins and heal their land. That verse is also being worked out through this whole 75 pages of First and Second Chronicles. Well, you may be asking, what value is there then in the slugging and sloshing our way through First and Second Chronicles? Well, first... It helps us to learn to read this story as what it is. God, the God-authorized version of our history. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said to the Corinthian Christians, many of whom were Gentiles, he says, when our forefathers were in the wilderness, when our forefathers were baptized unto Moses through the Red Sea and under the cloud, when our forefathers were in the wilderness eating bread and sacred drink, who is Christ. When our forefathers, this is our story. That's pretty big news, people. That's pretty big news. This is our story. Because why? Because of the grace of God alone and Christ alone who has adopted us into the family of Abraham. We become the descendants of Abraham now. Galatians 3, 26-29. This is our story, our history. And what's really cool is that it's older than our American story. We have roots that run back for millennia. This is our story. So we learn to read this story as what it is, the God-authorized version of our story. Almost every rehearsal in these two books of these true historical events gives us God's own analysis of the decisions that were made, the actions that were done. Gives us God's own analysis. Very often it will say, this did not please the Lord, this was not right. Or this was right, or whatever. It gives us God's own analysis of the decisions made and the actions done for the very purpose of helping to guide us in the long obedience in the same direction. Now that phrase, the long obedience in the same direction, is a book title from Eugene Peterson, the one who did the message. Well, he stole it from an atheist named Frederick Nietzsche. It's a great way to describe Christianity, 
our discipleship. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And so this is all God's own guidance for us in this long obedience in the same direction to lead us in the direction God wants to give us loads and to give us loads of reasons to care. That means then, my friends, that as the Spirit of God blows over our hearts while we are examining First and Second Chronicles, we will draw nearer to God. We will see God being faithful in the face of horrendous human infidelity, duplicity, and treachery, which will give us hope. But we will also watch him dependably replenish, rescue, and ratify his people's loyalty. And we will grow in our own fidelity as well. Let me put it to you one other way as I'm still thinking about this first application. We just started back in a cycle through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So today we did questions four, five, and six. Last week we did one, two, and three. So I'm going to tweak question and answer number three. Hopefully this will catch you. What do first and second chronicles principally teach? First and second chronicles principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So there's the first value, I think, of working our way through. Further... There is a subtle point that shades First and Second Chronicles. I know it's hot in here to you. It ain't nothing like what's going on inside of here. So just stay awake and stay with me. Fan yourself all you want. It's okay. But I want you to hear this. If you have adult children or any children, or you have parents maybe that are still alive, I want you to hear this. There's a subtle point that shades First and Second Chronicles. Hear me, especially if you have children, if you have adult children who have severely disappointed you, if you have parents that have severely disappointed you. First and Second Chronicles hammers subtly all the way through that there is no automatic link between the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of the parents and the faithfulness and unfaithfulness of the children. And that goes both directions. There's no automatic link. Now, yes, parents, we should raise our children to love Jesus and give them, as we say in our third baptism vow, when we baptize our kids, we're going to use all of the means of God's appointment to raise them up in this most holy religion. We're right to do that, but there's no automatic link. Because that statement that makes it an automatic link brings more shame than anybody should be carrying. We started homeschooling in 1991 when it was not sexy and it was not legal in a lot of places, my friends. And the homeschool curriculum and magazines in that day were built off of, and I understand they still are. You do all the right things here, those kids will turn out the right way here. Which always implies, if they don't turn out right here, then you screwed up. Carry the shame. Automatic. That's what I mean by there's no automatic link. 
Listen, just work through some of the kings. Faithful Asa. Spawned faithful Jehoshaphat. Hallelujah. But faithful Jehoshaphat sired faith-breaking Jehoram. Lord have mercy. Rotten Ahaz produced God-committed Hezekiah. Praise the Lord. God-committed Hezekiah bred the bloodiest, most anti-God king Judah ever had, Manasseh, who reigned the longest 55 years. Lord, have mercy. And yet, at the end, Manasseh repented. Praise the Lord. His son, godless Amon, hatched wholesome Josiah. Praise the Lord. And wholesome Josiah reproduced the last four kings of Judah, all who were faith-breaking kings. All the way through First and Second Chronicles, that reminder, there's no automatic link. And when we're reading through First and Second Chronicles, and when you see it, let it give you heart. You do the right things. Go do those right things. Your parents have turned against you. Maybe they've left the faith. Okay? But there's no closed door until they're dead. Just keep doing the right things. But in the end, you have to look at all your kids and your parents, and you have to say... What? They're only saved by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone. And First and Second Chronicles gives us that. And that should lift some burdened hearts. Thirdly, First and Second Chronicles pounds into our hearts and it pounds into our noggins a better and a healthier set of notions about revival, revitalization, and reformation. Now look, as Americans, we are in an adulterous love affair with the new and improved everything, Right? New and improved religion, new and improved spirituality, new and improved church planting, new and improved church growth or whatever. We even have commercials that tell us over and over again, it's not your father's Oldsmobile, it's not your father's Buick, it's not your father's Pontiac, always saying, we've got the newest and the most improvenest. And Americans go, oh yes, I want it. That's us. And that's become the mantra that we lustfully chant as we almost pornographically salivate over wanting the newest, freshest, thrillingest, latest, hottest, hippest, and most fashionable experience. The First and Second Chronicles provides the sane and sound and sober and salubrious method, if you will, for revival and reformation, and it is simply being reclaimed and returned to God as He has revealed Himself. As God promises in Jeremiah 6 and verse 16, Thus says the Lord, says Yahweh, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. 
Returning to the ancient paths, as God has revealed these things to us, has revealed himself to us in sacred scripture. So we return to these ancient paths. That may sound like we're being taken back to the stunted and stinted and stagnant ways. But dear friends, by us giving up the unrelenting rat race of the new and improved, and returning to God's ancient paths, we will find it freshening, freeing, and fortifying. Here's the last. What Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 5 through 17 applies to our adventure. I read that passage during the announcement. It's the end of the announcements. But it applies to our adventure that we're about to launch into. So let me tweak this one as well. And I hope you do this in your care groups tonight, by the way. Paul says to Timothy, from childhood, you have known first and second chronicles, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. First and second chronicles are breathed out by God and are profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction for training in righteousness, that man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First and second chronicles, profitable. In them, they will make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we look forward to this venture. We pray that you would help us as we read the genealogy, that we would not fall asleep while we're reading it. We'd pay attention, we would grow from it, we would learn from it. Lord, we look forward, because every one of us here that has any sense of genuineness and honesty before you knows we need to be reclaimed. We need to be revived. We need to be reformed. We need to be returned to you. So, Lord, we pray. We pray for that very thing to happen. Lift our hearts. Draw us near. In Jesus' name, amen.